Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. This is your brother Mikael Ahmed Smith here, letting you know that today's podcast was sponsored by Helping Hand for Relief and Development. Helping Hand is a leading Muslim nonprofit organization that has a top star rating by Charity Navigator. Over the years, I've had the privilege of working with them, and they've helped people from over 80 different countries around the world. They've worked for disaster relief and emergency relief in Palestine, Myanmar, and many other countries, Kenya, Somalia, Kashmir, Pakistan, and Haiti. To learn more and to be involved in helping the lives of other people, visit their website at hhrd.org. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots Community Space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution, we appreciate your prayers, and we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan, wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Okay, all right, assalamu alaikum everybody. Couple things really quickly before we get started. If we could kind of build a culture of trying to at least have some semblance of a walkway, just something, even if it's like eight inches or so, just so that in case anyone needs to get up and leave, uh, we don't want to make things difficult. Um, people might have to leave for whatever reason or take a phone call. So if we could have, like, towards the middle of the room, one line kind of take four inches back and the other lines go a little four inches forward, yeah, that would be really helpful. And line up with the door. May, it's all right. I got you, May. I got you. I got you. It's fine. Just kind of look at the person next to you and slide forward or backwards with them. Just create that walkway, inshallah. Okay? And also for the, for the brothers and sisters towards that area, if we can kind of push back and make some space for those who are coming in. So if you got chairs, maybe line up closer to the wall. That way people know that there's some space back there. Apparently, this is already happening behind the sofa. Yeah, we, everyone can find some spots, inshallah. Uh, assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Okay, first and foremost, welcome home, alhamdulillah. Happy to have everybody. It's always good to be back in the living room. Uh, when we were designing this place, by the way, we actually told the person who was buying the furniture and the people who were putting the flooring and stuff, they were like, what do you want it to look like? I'm like, a living room? They were like, what are, you, what, what are you doing in there? I'm like, just don't worry. The landlord was like, you can't live here. I'm like, I know, I know, I'm not living here. I was like, you can't. I was like, it's not my living room. I just want it to look like a living room so that we feel comfortable, alhamdulillah. Um, first of all, everyone welcome, alhamdulillah. Happy to have everybody. Lots of new faces. Um, I do want everybody, inshallah, to, if you see somebody new that you don't recognize, just say salam. Um, you know, that we, want, we want this community not just to be a community of people who know one another. That's not community. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's a social circle. We want it to be a community of welcoming people, everybody. So you know, I can't, you know, myself or the staff, we do our best, try to say salam to everybody, reach out. But obviously with the number here, it's difficult to get to everybody and to have that five, ten minute conversation with each person. So we need the whole community to be a community of Afshu salam Remember the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Afshu salam spread peace. So make it, make it something upon yourself that every time you come to Roots, just give yourself one rule. I'm going to meet somebody new. I'm going to say salam to them. I'm going to get to know them a little bit better. 
Uh, and, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to spend three hours, but it also shouldn't mean that you just say Saddam and, like, check it off the box. Actually spread that peace, right? And if you came here and you were made to feel that way, or if you came with friends, that's not the assumption. Not everyone came here with friends. Some people, they moved here. They don't have anybody that they came here with. Maybe somebody from out of town recommended them coming. Right, so they're coming here alone, and if if you're like me or if you're like anybody else, maybe here, that could be a very overwhelming, daunting thing coming to a place alone. So you know, if you came here by yourself or if you don't have anybody that you know here, welcome. Right, you're my friend, and I want everybody here who's part of Roots, especially those people that I see week after week. Like you got to have carry on this message because if and when I leave this earth and the community keeps going, then it can't just stop. Right, everybody has to keep keep it going. This is the Medina legacy. This is the way the Prophet Sallallahu was. Right, you go to Medina till today. There's people today that say, you know, welcome to Medina, the city of the Prophet Sallallahu as if like they're working for him, and they offer you with dates and juice and stuff like that. And you wonder. So many people go to Medina and they're shocked at how welcoming people are there because they understood what community meant and they wanted to carry on that legacy till today. So make sure that we do that, uh, along with making community welcoming. Please wash your hands. <laughs> so the first, you know, we're talking about like a health protocol here. Obviously, no one is not being inundated with news about this this uh this coronavirus may Allah ta'ala give everyone protection and shifa say i mean first thing is make dua give sadaqa uh do whatever you can and ask allah by the by the virtue of your good deed that allah protect people this is a serious thing like how many of us genuinely are making dua like praying not like oh my god i'm praying it doesn't no no not that like genuinely after salah like opening your hands to the heavens and for 30 seconds 45 seconds saying oh allah you are the one that controls everything. Oh Allah, please make this easy on us. Don't make it difficult on us. Cure people who have it. Give people protection from it. Save the elderly. Save children. Save those who are uh, compromised to it. Just make dua, like sincerely. Give give forty five seconds. You know, scrolling through Twitter or Instagram and seeing another article about it, another news piece on it for another minute that's going to tell you the same thing that you already know is a lot less useful than you opening your hands to the heavens and asking Allah to help. Right. So make some dua. Ask a lot of help. That's the first thing. The second thing that we're taught by the Prophet is after you make dua, you also have to take the means. You have to take the means. And these the means now are cleanliness, number one, right? Making sure that you are washing your hands, making sure that you are doing everything you can to not like touch your face, basically, right? And for people like myself who bite my nails and things like that, it's difficult, right? And then I have kids, so I gotta be extra careful with my kids, because if I come back from roots and they come running to me, baba baba. I just shook like 9,000 people's hands and I got to make sure I wash my hands. So we all have to be a little bit better about that because you don't know who has kids, who doesn't, who's living with their grandparents, who isn't. Maybe somebody has a, a disease or a medication that's compromising their immune system, all these things. So everyone just kind of you know be a part of that. The second thing is that if you do cough or sneeze or anything, cover your face. Okay, These are all prophetic hadith. <laughs> the Prophet said the barakah and food is washing your hands before and after. Right? In 2020, they're like, wash your hands. 1,400 years ago, the Prophet was like, wash your hands, please. Right? That's the first thing. Second thing is cover your mouth as the Prophet instructed. Third thing is that if you're sick, we have the live streams. You still be part of the community. If you think you're feeling sick, you have a fever, you have a cough, you're questionable, that's fine. Right? You have the live streams. If you are not sick, but maybe you're afraid of contracting it because maybe you know that uh, your immune system might be compromised to that or vulnerable to it, we have the live streams. You can still be part of the community, right? Hi. So uh, we're going to do our best, inshallah. Okay, so we're taking from the means, but first and foremost, we, we ask Allah to protect us. Okay, all right, let's begin, inshallah. Um, 
lessons from last week. Where do we start? Where do we leave off in the life of the Prophet Muhammad We left off in the very beginning of Medina. So I'm trying to set the groundwork of what Medina was like. The Prophet ﷺ, there were two major things that we covered last week. The first was the actual construction of the masjid, that the community was something that was seen as absolutely essential. Uh, and we talked about this idea of when you move somewhere, when you look for a new place to live, or when you're, when you're getting a job and you're relocating, there are so many different elements that you will balance and consider. Commute times, closeness to amenities, you know, schools, property value, all these things. But community hasn't been, hasn't been or hasn't become something that we're really looking out for until maybe recently. You know? and, and, and I remember growing up, the sacrifice and dedication of the 45-minute commute to the masjid that my parents used to make because there was only that was the closest one to us. And my dad worked close by, so we had to live over there, but the masjid came second. What we're saying, what we're thinking is that when it comes to where we want to live, especially in the day and age of commuting and podcasts and highways, you might want to actually think about living closer to your community and driving a little bit to work. Or you might want to consider moving a little bit closer to a place that restores your soul and feeds your soul and nourishes you internally, as well as the place that you're seeking your income from, right? Because the reality is that places that nourish your soul, whether they are masajid, whether they are community spaces like Roots, or both, right? You want to be able to be, be there and be involved on a regular basis. And distance and difficulty getting there is going to be something that's going to take away from your motivation. It's natural. It's human. No one wants to get up and have to drive 45 minutes to an hour or two hours round trip just to go and benefit from maybe a 10 or 15 minute prayer or a 30 minute lecture. If you do, that's amazing. That's on your part. But don't make it more difficult. Make sure that the masjid is as essential to you as it was to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It was the first thing he built. And it was very humble. You know, sometimes people look for the wrong things when it comes to community. You know, how many chandeliers does it have? Right? What kind of carpet? You know, what kind of the baller entrance? And this is, by the way, something that we have to be careful of as the next generation coming up to try to establish these institutions. We can't get suckered in to falling into the trap of trying to recreate the mega masjid over and over and over again. We have to make community spaces accessible. And sometimes that means that they don't have to look like the Taj Mahal. Right, that they don't have to look like the Sheikh Zayed Mosque in Abu Dhabi, right? Even honestly, the way Mecca and Medina are now, when you go, that's a circumstance of history and time and development. It wasn't like that in the time of the Prophet He easily could have made it the most luxurious and the most. He could have made it that way. He could have asked all of these Muslims, the wealthy and those who had newly come to Islam and were very motivated to give to him and support him. He could have said, "Let's gather the most expensive material we can. Let's import everything from Yemen or everything from." He could have from Persia. He didn't. He made things from the soil, from the earth, right? Mud, clay, sand, pebbles, leaves. And the focus of that space was what was happening on the inside. It wasn't happening on the outside. Granted, air conditioning helps. Carpet helps. right? We, looking beautiful also helps. We appreciate that. But all of that is irrelevant if nothing's happening inside. It has to be beautiful in the heart. So the Prophet some taught us that. 150 uh, feet by 150 feet. Very small space. right? Very, very small space. And it only expanded when it needed to be expanded. It was a very small space. So we have to understand that our spiritual development is not contingent upon massive structures, right? 
we don't look at massive buildings, massive places, and say, wow, that's impressive. We look at the transformation that's happening inside of the hearts of people in small spaces or big, and we say, wow, that's actually amazing, right? We ask a lot to make us that way. Quality has always been more than quantity, right? The quality of the experience. The second thing that the Prophet did to lay the groundwork of Medina was he built this, what's called mu'akha. He built this, this pact of brotherhood and sisterhood. And he wanted people to come together and to know that they could rely upon each other. But there was a two-part system to this. So he would tell people from Mecca, the Muhajirin, and the Ansar, those who lived in Medina, who had welcomed the people who had emigrated from Mecca, he would buddy them up and pair them up in systems. Right? So he would say, you know what? You're this person's host. You're this person's host. You're from Medina. This person came from Mecca. You're their host. Your job is to help them in life, make life easy for them, host them, make sure that they know where they are. And, and they took it above and beyond. The people in Medina were offering like half of their wealth. Here, this is my house. Take half of it. Here, this is my, you know, this is my field. These are my, 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 my animals that I'm grazing. Take half of them. They would literally, they, they interpreted this literally, right? The Prophet Sallallahu is saying that none of you believe until you love for your brother or sister that what you love for yourself. They would interpret it like hyper literally. And the, the Meccans, right, they were like, no, that's okay. All right, we appreciate your generosity, but you don't have to. You know, they would say, can you just show me where the marketplace is so I can get to work? Can you just show me where I can go and start my own business? Can you just show me, you know, I would love your support for a little bit, but can you just show me where I can go and get started? What does this show us? In Islam, we're taught two things. Number one, when you're giving help, give as much as you can. When you're giving help, give as much as what? You can. Don't hold back. Why? Because when a person holds back from providing assistance, then they're actually holding back from assisting themselves because the Prophet said that Allah is in the assistance of his servant so long as his servant is in the assistance of their brother or sister. So as much as I'm helping people is as much as Allah is going to help me. So if I hold back, I'm actually holding back from my own self. That's number one. So you give as much as you can, right? But on the other side, if you are the one that is looking for help, you also make sure, the Prophet seek the, the fulfillment of your needs with some discretion, with some discretion. It's not about walking into a room and yelling, hey, I need help, and expecting 150 or 100 or 50 or 20 people to just drop everything and give you what they can. Why? Because everyone has their own circumstances. You know, subhanAllah, yesterday I was, I was, visiting, uh, I was visiting a family. I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's, t- it's difficult. I was visiting a family in a hospital who's in a really tough situation. And I realized, subhanAllah, you know, you look at people on the outside. I'm looking at all your faces right now. You know what's crazy? Everyone in this room is going through something. Every single person has something going on. And you look at somebody and you look at maybe what they're wearing or how they look or how they appear. And we judge maybe the ease or the difficulty of their life based off such superficial things. And we think, you know what, this person, I know them. I follow them on social media. They can help. They got it going on, right? They got extra. They can, but you don't know. And then you, at the other side, you look at somebody and you say, man, maybe they need some help and they're fine. So we all have to be a little bit merciful with one another and assume that when we are helping, that that's what people can do, right? And not shame or guilt people for not being there more when we need a little bit of assistance. Some people will actually guilt their friends and say, you're never there for me. And they're not realizing that that friend is going through stuff that they themselves need help for, that they're struggling and every night they're crying and begging to Allah for assistance, but now they're being made to feel like what? The, the criminal in the entire situation. So Islam beautifully teaches us two things. If you're the host, 
you need to pamper your guests as much as possible. If you're the guest, don't demand from your host as much as possible. What does this do? Why does the Prophet not just talk about one side? When he talks about both sides, it makes sure that the relationship stays sincere. Balanced. Very good. Beautiful. That is balanced and sincere. If the Prophet only talked about, hey, hosts, or hey, people who, are, who have, give, 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 and he didn't ever teach those who are seeking that, you know what, have some discretion. Right? I'm even doing the, the, the thing that I never, I never thought I would do, right? the Arab fingers, right? Okay? <laughs> It can mean 90 different things, right? I used to get it in a different translation when I was younger, right? Which is hachuf. You'll see, right? Or my mom. She wouldn't even say anything. She would just go, from across the, the dinner party. I'd be acting a fool, and she's like, and I'm like, oh, God. I start sweating. My friend's like, what's wrong? I'm like, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what's going to happen later, right? But if the prophet all of a sudden didn't teach us, like, relax, right? Relax a little bit when you need some help. Seek Seek with some discretion. Maybe there's people that are a little bit closer to you that it's better for you to go and ask them. Maybe instead of making it an ordeal, you kind of gradually talk about it. Maybe it's making sure the person that you're seeking from is not in a situation where they themselves are overwhelmed. You know, you ask somebody. It's really interesting. SubhanAllah, one of the keys to communication before you drop something heavy on somebody is what? Asking them, hey, are you in a place right now where I can kind of open up to you about something? They might not be there. They might not be there, and you drop something on them, and they don't know how to respond. No matter how they respond, they're going to look like a jerk. But maybe the adab of that is, hey, you got a minute? I'm going through something. I just kind of want to open up. If you're not free, we can reschedule. It's fine, right? And understanding that and making sure, you know, and I'll, I'll be honest with you guys because you guys are like family to me. We're in my living room, by the way, right? I'll be honest with you. I get text messages all the time, and I, I, I'm at the service of everybody. If I can do it, I will be there. And I get text messages about a variety of things, different importance, different levels, right? I was one time sitting at the bedside of somebody who was passing away. And I was trying to console the family that was there, literally living their last moments. And I got a phone call from somebody I didn't pick up. Am I okay not picking up? Okay. And by the way, I'm not telling you this to give myself some sympathy, okay? I'm telling you this because this was a friend of mine. It wasn't even from the community. And I didn't pick up, and I got a text message saying, what? You, what? you think you're too important to pick up my phone calls? And I said, you know, after the whole ordeal was done, I didn't see it until later, of course, and I put the times together. I said, subhanAllah, after the whole ordeal was done, I said to myself, man, I know that if I tell this person this situation, they're going to feel like garbage. So I'm not going to do it. But I said, man, how many times have maybe you done this to somebody else? where you're texting, calling, texting, calling, hey, where are you, where are you? And maybe that person's going through it, right? Having a little bit of husna dhan, some benefit of the doubt, okay? This is where brotherhood and sisterhood, it starts to crumble when there's no good assumptions of people. So the Prophet, sallallahu he tried to build this culture that assume the best of your brother and sister. Serve them as much as you can. Don't ask for too much. Ask, and when they give, don't tell them, oh, you're being cheap, right? Whether it's money, time, emotional support, anything. Don't do that because you don't know. Because you honestly don't know. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us that cultural, emotional awareness, inshallah. Right? So it's a holistic process. Now, the lessons that we'll do this week, some interesting stuff, subhanAllah. The third thing, these were, by the way, the first two of a list of three. The Prophet, when he got to Medina, he did three things to lay down the framework, the foundation. These are the first two. The third thing was the Prophet, had to engage with the community that was already in Medina. 
Okay, remember he came as a as an immigrant. He didn't he wasn't establishing a new community with new population. He was coming in to be now the prophet of God in a leadership role in a city that already had people in it. Okay, so it's almost like when you're electing a new position, like governor or mayor or whoever, and that person now has to also there's people that the hearts have already been won over, but now that person also has to win over the hearts of what? Everybody else. People who don't know. So in Medina, you had people who accepted the Prophet Sallallahu and you also had people who religiously did not accept him. But as a leader, they were cool with him. Primarily, they were from the Jewish community. Primarily. So there were tribes of Muslims and there were tribes of Jews. Okay? The tribes of Muslims, the Prophet Sallallahu he laid out a document, the Constitution of Medina. And if you look at the Constitution of Medina, I have my notes here that I'll, that I'll point some things out. If you look at the Constitution of Medina, amongst the Muslims, the advice he gave to people is, he said, we are united by faith more than we are united by lineage and tribe. If that's the summary, it's a long document. He goes through, he actually names tribes specifically. And he says, it doesn't matter if you're from this tribe or this tribe or this tribe. He goes, you have no right to attack one another, to subvert one another, to sabotage one another, to do this, to do that. You know why this was such an important thing? You tell me. Why was it so important that this is the, this is the first thing that the Prophet Sallallahu is putting on paper? By the way, he can't write it, so he's dictating it. The first thing that he's putting on paper to this new community of Muslims. Why? Okay, good. What else? Yeah, very good. Everyone gets it. Arabia was very tribal. By the way, we have that tribalism here too. You know, we think about 1,400 years ago, Arabia or their tribal. Haha, we're so advanced now and sophisticated. How many of you are from Houston? Boo, right? We have to. As Dallas people, we have to. And then you know what's crazy? Even internally within Dallas, it's like Arlington versus everyone, right? <laughs> or like Richardson versus Plano. And then Plano is like, oh, and Frisco people are like, oh, you still live in Plano? We, we left Plano like seven years ago when my parents decided to build a house in Frisco. You know, like everyone, it's too true, right? Irving. I tell people I live in Irving. They go, which part? I go, Irving. They're like, not Las Colinas? I'm like, no. They're like, oh, oh, right? Maybe we should have the dinner at my house, okay? Like, <laughs> so we have this kind of tribal. It still exists. It still exists. North Arlington, South Arlington, Plano or Frisco. Do you, live in, do you go to Valley Ranch? Do you go to, everyone, you know, it's, it's something that Allah Ta'ala built us with that is a little bit of a challenge that we have to get over. And you see this in the time of the Prophet And By the way, he's talking to Muslims. He's speaking to people who have said, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. That Allah is the only deity worthy of my worship and that Muhammad is his messenger, sallallahu And he's reminding them, look, I know you said this with your tongue, but your actions might come out. You might have some reflux, some cultural reflux. You might think that you're better than somebody. Why? Because of where you come from, right? Because of where you're, what city you're from. I've seen this down to the minute, granular degree. Like, where are you from? You tell a person, you know, their parents, where are your parents from? This country overseas. Which city? This city. Which suburb? Which street? I've seen. Like, which area? And they want, why? Because they're sizing you up. They want to see like, oh, okay, are, what, kind of, what kind of Urdu do you speak? Right? <laughs> what kind of Arabic do you speak? And then there's these little, you know, and, and they're passive aggressive. They're not like, no one's starting war. But they're these little moments of, 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 of arrogance that come from these things. I mean, don't even get me started on race. Don't even get me started on 
Arabs and Desis or blacks and whites or Arabs and, you know, don't even get me started on that, how, how common it is. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is addressing now everybody. He's addressing Persians, Africans, Arabs, and he's saying, all of you, your Islam is stronger than what your last name is. Your Islam is stronger than the color of your skin. And they still had issues. They still had problems. And the Prophet Sallallahu had to constantly remind them. And he, it's one of the few things that he became so upset about. He said, subhanAllah, there was one time, Abu Dhar, he one time got into an argument with Bilal. Abu Dhar was from like one of the, um, he, was, he was from one of the, the more like, what you might consider like the, the, um, the pure Arab tribes. Okay, the Ghifari tribe. Now they weren't like, they weren't known as a good tribe. In fact, they, they were known for being like highway robbers. So they weren't like a really particularly noble tribe, but they were like Arab Arab. Okay. Now Abu Dhar, interestingly enough, his skin tone was fairly dark, right? You would actually consider him in our day and age probably to be black. And then you have Bilal. They get into an argument. Bilal, who's uh, Abyssinian. Okay. Another black Sahabi. Abu Dhar and Bilal start arguing and Abu Dhar says to him, Ya Ibn Sauda, you son of a black woman. And he wasn't saying it factually. He was saying it in a, in a derogatory way. Right? They, got into, they disagreed on something, and he says, Yeah, Ibn Sauda, oh, you son of a black woman. So the Bilal, radiallahu anh, he becomes hurt. He goes to the Prophet, he says, Ya Rasulullah, do you know he called me? He says, what? He says this. He looks at Abu Dhar, you know what he says to him? He goes, you said that? Abu Dhar says, yes, Ya Rasulullah. He points at him, and the hadith says that his face was flush, his temple was showing. He says, Innaka rajulun fika jahiliya. He goes, you're a person that inside of you is still ignorance. He goes, we left all that. Why are you bringing it in? You're like, why are you bringing this into the house? We left all that garbage. And you're still bringing those words here in Medina as a Muslim? You're talking to your brother like this? Can you, guys, can you imagine if the Prophet said that to you? Would you ever recover? I would just melt and die. There's no way. There's no, well, there's no way. I'm doing it again, okay? There's no, someone just said, well, we're in an Arab over here. We had an Arlington first over here. All right, okay. There's no way. Dude, I read the hadith. It gives you goosebumps. Some of you maybe even got it now. You just shook a little bit. Like, oh my God. And Bilal is not celebrating. It's a painful thing for everybody to see. And so Abu Dhar, he actually goes to Bilal weeping and crying. And he says, I've humiliated you and I'm not going to leave you until you humiliate me. And Bilal's like, relax, dude, it's okay, it's okay. Like, you made a mistake, I forgive you, I forgive you. He goes, no. He goes, wallahi, I will not leave. And he lays down and he says, put your foot on my face, which is a big deal. It's a big deal. I know all of us are like, you know, that's weird. No, it's a huge deal. It's a big sign of disrespect. And he goes, I'm not going to. And he actually starts grabbing his leg and he's like trying to put it on his head. He's like, I can't believe that I've, I've done this. He's so regretful, so remorseful. This is the culture that the Prophet ﷺ built about this, these fake lines. These fake lines that weren't, that we didn't build, that were built for us. This idea that somebody is better than somebody because of this. It existed because of heritage, ethnicity. It existed because of race. It existed because of religion. It existed because of religion. The Prophet ﷺ was telling everybody, just because you were from this tribe or this religious practice doesn't make you better than anybody. He reminded them of this. It's very difficult, y'all. It is very difficult when you look at somebody to assume the best in them. 
It is hyper difficult. We have been trained, especially in our era, to value the apparent much more than it's worth. That we look at what someone dresses like or what they look like, and we automatically assume to know their demographic in so many ways. How much they make, what kind of Muslim they are, how much they practice, you know, what their name is. My dad, till this day, Jim Murphy, walks to the masjid. Do you want to convert to Islam? He's like, I've been Muslim for 50 years. <laughs> Kid asking him is 18. He's like, I was at your birth. He's like, do you want a Quran? My dad's like, you know, like, think about it. I, I mean, to me, many of you probably still think I'm a convert, right? Th- that didn't get many laughs because half of you do. Because you guys are like, yeah. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, like being a convert's bad. No, it's an honor. Allah didn't bless me with that honor. I was born into this. I didn't get to choose it, right? Imagine the honor of choosing this. SubhanAllah. Shows the kind of heart those people have. My dad was the one. My dad has no credit. But the assumption that because someone's name is Murphy or someone's, you know, this or that or someone wears hijab or doesn't or does this or that, the assumption that you can tell anything about them is is arrogance to a T, right? The Prophet knew this was going to be a problem. He understood. That's why he stomped it out in the beginning. He said, no, 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 that's not how we operate here. Your faith, what binds you together is stronger than what pulls you apart in every level, in every level. You you see this beautifully at Hajj and Umrah. You have no ability to even communicate with the person next to you because of where they're from, where you're from. You share nothing, no culture, no common anything, but you believe that Allah is one and his messenger is Muhammad and you're there and both of you are smiling at each other. It's crazy. You go to Masjid Nabu in Medina, you're sitting with somebody and he offers you, you know, he has a loaf of bread, he gives you half, right? Forget coronavirus for a second, okay? He gives you half. And you think to yourself, what is it between us besides La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah? That's what makes this tradition so powerful and so beautiful is that from the beginning, the Prophet said, this is the most important thing, okay? So number one, he told the community that because why? He knew it was going to be a problem. We cannot be the reason why this is not being lived today. We have to make sure we get away from this. You know, we have to make sure. The next presentation he made or the next document he drew up was not only to the Muslim community, but also to the general community, including the Jewish tribes, okay, the general community. And he said, very beautifully, he said essentially very similar things, just obviously he's not forcing anyone to convert. So he's saying, you exist, right? We, we practice our faith, you practice yours. And he even allowed for them to have their own religious institutions. A lot of people think that Medina and the Prophet was like a di- dictatorship. He allowed for them to have their own religious institutions. When there was even disputes between Muslims and people who were not of the Islamic faith, he would actually consult or tell them to go consult with the religious specialist of their faith. So the rabbis, he would say, go and ask them, like, what do they say about this? I'm not, I'm not a specialist in your, in your Torah, in your, in your, in your book. Right. Sometimes there were even Muslims who tried to come and use that Muslim card against the non-Muslim. They would say, oh, you know, I'm Muslim and this person, we're doing business and I'm a Muslim and they're not, you know, right? Like as if that's the only thing that mattered. And the Prophet Sallallahu one time, this is actually a very powerful story. One time he, he, he heard the case, right, for what it was, whether you're Muslim or not is irrelevant. And he says, I'm siding on the side of this person. The person happened to be a Jewish person. So it's their right. You have to pay them. And the man was like, Ugh, can you imagine? And he goes to Omar. He goes to Omar and he goes, Yeah, Omar, Ya Farouk, right? He goes, I have a question. And again, like you could ask any of the companions if they knew, they would give you the answer. If they didn't, they would take you to the Prophet. So he goes to Omar and says, Yeah, Omar, I have this issue with this person. I'm a Muslim. They're Jewish. What do you say? Right? Like the, 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 the stupidest argument ever. 
And Omar goes, well, and then somebody goes, hey, didn't you ask the prophet this question? And Omar stops and goes, excuse me? And the guy goes, yeah, but I thought I'll come get your opinion. And Omar goes, hold on. You already saw the prophet something about this? And he goes, yeah. He gave you an answer? Yeah. He goes, why are you talking to me? And he did, I can't talk about what he did. So anyways, right? I can't say it. It's being recorded. <laughs> he laid the smack down, okay? He laid the smack down in a very serious way. Because that's a sign of hypocrisy. That's a sign that this person didn't value the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Like, it's one thing to disagree with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's one thing to say, Ya Rasulullah, I don't know. It's tough for me. It's one thing. But to just discard it and say, I don't agree. I'm going to go to Omar. Like, what are you trying to do, man? You're trying to start, like, anarchy? Like, a little bit of chaos? Right? But the beautiful point here is that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't fall into this, tri- this religious tribalism stuff. Right? But there was an issue that was pre-existing, which is an issue that we also have to deal with which is that before the Prophet ﷺ came, there was a lot of damage. There was a lot of baggage. What was the damage? What was the baggage? That the Jewish tribes, before the Prophet ﷺ had come, they were the religious community. They were known to be like the, 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 at the top of the religious totem pole. And that gave them a lot of status in Arabia, like being people who could read, right? Because religion is associated with education. A lot of people don't realize, but typically wherever there's religious studies happening is when you have a lot of the highest levels of literacy, right? A lot of people don't realize this, but this is actually historically true. In some contexts, maybe not so much, but generally speaking, it is. So they could read, they could write, they were literate, they were well-versed. A lot of religious studies revolve around logic as well. You have to be intelligent to understand legal rulings, right? And so they had to step up when it came to status amongst the pagans. Now, before the Prophet came to Medina, the Aus and Khazraj tribes were tribes that were pagan in nature. And the Jewish tribes there, Banu Qaynuqa and others, they would kind of flex on them a little bit. And they would make them feel bad because they weren't from the religious community. They would use their religion to make people feel bad. They would be condescending towards them like, oh, you guys don't have a scripture? Why don't you read ours? Oh, you can't read? It's because you're pagan, right? And they would have that kind of tone. And this was known. It was known. I know we're all like, you know, shaking our heads and we're like, oh my God, how could they? This can, be, this can happen with any religious community. This can happen. It is happening in the Muslim community. It can happen in any religious community. That religion is used as a tool to make others feel, to feel bad. So they did this. And obviously, what do you think that the Aus and Khazraj developed in their heart? resentment, hatred, animosity. They began to hate even more, right? But it wasn't their fault? Not necessarily. They were being abused religiously, and so they responded in a way that's very human. We don't like the way you make us feel, so we're going to hate you. Even though the message of the Jews was true up until the Prophet came. So you have, subhanAllah, this very, te- this very growing tension. And so the Prophet, in his address to the Jewish community, he said essentially, like, you guys have to tread lightly. Because you don't understand that what you've done to these people is similar to like abuse. And now we're trying to recover. So you can't try to, you can't try to flex on them. You can't engage with them. You can't go to war with them. Like you got to leave everyone that you abused for the last decades or centuries until the new message came. You can't do that. You cannot try to poke at them. These people, they just accepted Islam, but they still remember how you, t- how you treated them. So you cannot, you cannot engage with them. So this was some of the rules that the Prophet ﷺ had. But generally speaking, it was fairness and justice without consideration of one's religion. Uh, the next moment that was huge 
and I wanted to kind of share this before we close off for tonight, inshallah. We'll do, a, you know, maybe 10 more minutes. Is the advent of the Adhan. The advent of the Adhan. Okay? Now, the Adhan was very interesting. Many of us, you guys know the Adhan, right? When the call to prayer, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, said very beautifully, recordings of it, right? Uh, electronic uh, little masjid clocks across the world going off at the wrong times, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it works for about the first three months and then like daylight savings happens. You're like, what's going on, right? It's calling the Adhan at 940 in the morning. You're like, I don't know what prayer this is or what madhab or whatever, right? So the Adhan though has a very beautiful story, has a very powerful story. When the Muslim community was established and the masjid was being constructed or, or was constructed, obviously one of the nature, or the, one, of the, one of the functions of the masjid was to pray. But you need to notify people to pray and not everyone lives close enough. So the question that arose was, how do we call people's attention to the prayer? How do we get people to come in? We take it for granted that the Adhan was always there, but it's not the case. How did the Adhan come to be? There was actually a moment where the Prophet ﷺ actually sought counsel from his companions. And that's the first lesson that we'll take. The Prophet ﷺ is receiving direct revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, okay? And he still has the humility, he still has the frame of mind to ask, right? How many of y'all consider yourself to be pretty well technically well-trained or you're an expert in something anybody i'm not talking about like professionally just in general how many of you think you're good at like yeah khalid coffee okay photography okay wow mashallah man of many skills okay to, to be something and you consider yourself to be not just an, a, a beginner but you're someone who is familiar with it right and naturally what comes with that khalid is sometimes the hesitation to ask somebody what their opinions are on something, especially the more you think you know about something, right? It's natural. So if you think that you're good, for example, if you, if you are good, sorry, there's a really like condescending way of saying that. If you're good at photography or someone here, uh, you know, uh, Rana was talking about her skincare routine. If you have a good skincare routine or if you think that you're somewhat fashionable, right? Or you're, you're more fashionable than the, or you're, you know sports really well or you understand engineering or medicine or anything, to stop and say to yourself, you know what? Let me ask everybody what they think it's not part of the, 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 the natural logical flow. You only ask when you don't know, right? If you don't know something, you're like, let me stop and ask. But if you know, you're like, I don't need to ask, okay? This happens a lot. It actually happens in like even micro moments. How many of you, inshallah, hope to be married at some point in your life? All right, you're like, that's why I'm here. No, stop that. That's not why roots exist, okay? How many of you are married? Alhamdulillah. Okay, mashallah. Wow, that's it? There's like three people. I'm one. Okay. Alhamdulillah. Okay. This, this is one of the things that can actually cause major issues in any relationship. Any relationship, whether the person's married, whether you're, uh, you know, this, your, your parents and you, anybody. This can cause major issues. What? Not being roped into the conversation, having someone make your decision for you. It's really, really hurtful. Even if the person not necessar is necessarily like a, an expert in something. I will never forget a few years back when uh, it was Black Friday. And I was buying a TV. And I woke up in the morning. It was Black Friday. And I remember they had this sale. And I purchased a TV. I texted my wife, Maharina. I was like, hey, guess what? I got you a TV. She goes, you got us a TV, right? And then she goes, which one? Did you already buy it? And I said, yeah, yeah, I already got it. She goes, why didn't you ask? And I remember being like, why? <laughs> and, and subhanAllah, like, the intention was sincere. I'm the one that did all the research. I was reading all the reviews. I was the one that was searching online. I was the one that was looking, asking people. But at the end of the day, her point was super valid, which was that 
if we you consider us to have a relationship, then it doesn't matter whether or not you consider yourself being an expert. My opinion should matter to you. You know, Ibrahim salam, when he's told by Allah to slaughter his son, he says, I see in my dreams that I have to slaughter you. And then he says what to him? What, tell me what you think. He's a prophet. There is no tell me what you think. It's a command from God. It has to happen. He says, tell me what you think. The prophet sallam, numerous times gathers his companions and he asks them, what do you think we should do? It, you know, if I were them, I'd be like, Ya Rasulullah, you're the one that is receiving revelation from God. That's why their response was often what? Allah knows. Allah and his messenger know best. That's why they would respond like that. They would say, Allah and his messenger know best. Because they were humble and they said, you're asking me for advice, Ya Rasulullah, but God and you are the ones that we ask for advice. Why would you come to us? But Allah ordered the Prophet ﷺ to do this. Why? Because it's important for everybody to know that they are part of that community. So he gathered his companions and said, what should we do? How should we call people to prayer? One of them said, let's try to raise a banner, you know, like a flag. Like, it's time to pray, raise a flag, let everyone see it. And people were like, yeah, it's, it's a good start, but that's not really the way that I want to go with this because there's so many different obstacles, there's so many different issues. Let's just, that doesn't seem like it's going to be very effective. What else do you think we should do? Somebody said, well, the Jewish community, you know how they call to prayer, they use a horn. So I said, why don't we just get a horn? And we'll blow the horn and everyone will hear it and they'll come. And the Prophet said, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. It's kind of what they do. I don't want to take from them, right? We have our own identity. We should be unique in that. And then you have another companion say, well, the, the Christians, I've you know, seen that they ring a bell. Maybe if we rang a bell, then people would know and they associate it with prayer and they would come. The Prophet said the same thing. He goes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to take from another religious tradition. And then another person said, we should light a fire. Like the Zoroastrians. And they just weren't getting it. Like he, just, he kept saying, like, I don't want to take from another religious tradition. And they just kept saying, because it's all they knew. It's all they knew, right? And so the Prophet looked visibly concerned. Like, we can't figure this out, you know? And by the way, him not wanting to take from another religious tradition is not him being elitist. He's teaching us that it's important to value your religious identity and not blend. Sure, there's a lot of things that religions share, absolutely, without a doubt. But to say we're all the same and blend in on areas is not necessarily the most authentic to what you believe, right? You should be able to believe what you believe and have a neighbor who believes what they believe and still be neighbors. You shouldn't have to say that we agree on everything. That's not the case. On interfaith panels, I'm the worst. Because I'm there to build bridges, but they're like, we all believe the same thing. Everyone's like, yeah, hallelujah. And I'm like, no. We don't believe the same thing. So do you believe that Muhammad's a prophet? They're like, no. I'm like, okay. I'm like, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God. And then I'm like, but here we are. And we're trying to build bridges. Is that okay? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, you know, everyone's saying hallelujah because all you hear are in the same church. And I'm the only Muslim here, right? Like, we all believe the same thing. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of true. All of you do. I was like, but I don't. And it's important for us not to whitewash the principles of our faith. It's very, very important for us not to do that. You can absolutely still be loving and generous and hospitable. You have to be. It's part of our faith. But don't erase your faith in the process. So he's teaching us a very valuable lesson here, which is you don't got to be arrogant. Of course not. You can't be arrogant. We just talked about the Jews who were arrogant against the pagans and what that did. But don't sell yourself short when it comes to your identity and religion. Right, whether it's like adopting your name or whether it's anything like that. I've become much more conscious of this as of late, especially because I'm a white dude. So it's easy for me to get away. What's your name? Murphy. It's really easy. Or like just wearing like maybe standard you know, clothing. And I'm like, man, you know what? SubhanAllah, I'm, I want to rep my faith a little bit more. So maybe after Jummah, like I'm just going to rock this dope to Kroger, dude. <laughs> Everyone's like, this guy goes to Hogwarts. <laughs> like, he's like, 
is va- on vacation, you know? One time I was on a train. Wallahi, I was in college. I was taking the train downtown Chicago to be with And I was wearing a thobe, and I was wearing, I don't know why, but I, I used to think that these sandals were cool. They were made out of rope. The people running that, the people running that, that company back then are definitely in the CBD industry right now. Okay, so, so, so I used to wear these. And I remember I was listening to Quran. I was listening to Surah Kahf on the way on an iPod. You guys remember the iPod? So I was listening on an iPod, you know, back when you had a phone in one hand, the iPod in the other hand. And I remember these guys on the train, they were so funny, man. They were like, hey, Moses. <laughs> hey, Moses, where are your sheep at? And I was like, <laughs> laughing. I just started laughing, you know. It is what it is. You just got to, you know. And then my entire life, uh, you know, calling roll. I'm like, you know, Adam, yeah, Alex, yeah. Abd- I'm like, Abdurrahman, that's me. How do you say that, right? And then you go, I don't even want to try. They just, everyone acts like they're going to be cursed if they say it, like it's a, like it's a spell. This is, this is the kind of identity that you have to embrace and love and wear with admiration and pride. Not arrogance, but pride, right? Because this is who you are. Your faith is what makes you who you are. And if you, if you embrace it with love, then guess what? You make people more comfortable embracing you as who you are. They respect it. Absolutely, they do. So the Prophet was like, look, you know, we, we love Musa, right? He said, we have more of a right to him. He's my brother. He's my brother in prophethood. But we're not going to copy everything that his, his nation did. So Abdullah bin Zayd, who was one of the companions, he left this gathering feeling very distraught because the Prophet was distraught. So he left feeling kind of upset. And he goes home and he kind of was like laying down. He was just kind of thinking, like, how can I help? How can I help? And he said he kind of dozed off. He fell asleep. And when he dozed off and he fell asleep, he saw in a dream a figure of a person come to him in green robes, and he was carrying a bell. And he goes to the person in his dream, and he says, can I get that bell from you? And the person says, why? And he says, I'll buy it from you because I want to use it to call people to prayer, right? Because he was really concerned about how they're going to get people to call to prayer. So then the person in the robe in his dream says, can I give you something better? And Abdullah bin Zayd says, sure. And that's when he teaches him the adhan as we know it today, in his dream. Now, Abdullah bin Zayd wakes up, and he's like, I have to go see the Prophet. So he runs to the Prophet and says, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Rasulullah, I had a dream. And the Prophet smiles. And one of the reasons why the narration says that he was like welcoming and taking him in is because the Prophet had been told through Wahi that this would happen. He'd been told by Jibreel that this person is going to have this dream. So it was all unfolding before his eyes. So Abdullah bin Zayd comes to him and says, Ya Rasulullah, I saw in this dream this happened. The person with the bell, I asked for it. And he gave me this and he said it to him. And the Prophet said, This is the one. This is what we're going to use. And then Omar. He said to him, or before this, he said, go to Bilal. Bilal has a beautiful voice. He goes, go to him. And he goes, I want you to teach him this because his voice is more beautiful. And he's going to call people and people will be stunned by it. They'll show up. When he heard Bilal calling, Omar comes running out. He goes, man, I had that dream too. He did have it. He did. He goes to the prophet. He goes, I had that dream as well. The prophet said, yeah, Abdullah beat you to it, man. He beat you to it. There's interestingly, subhanAllah, and I'll finish on this. There's a couple of things that I want to talk about with this. This is really actually beautiful. Imam Ghazali said something really powerful. We talked about this a little bit in the prayer workshop on Saturday. He said that the adhan is God calling you to meet with him. The adhan is Allah calling you to meet with him. And he said, you know, there's a hadith beautifully that says, whoever loves to meet Allah, that Allah loves to meet them. And whoever hates to meet Allah, Allah does not like to meet them. So Imam Ghazali said, if you hear the adhan and you feel in your heart a sense of hatred or a sense of disturbance or a sense of discomfort, he goes, then that is going to be the status of your prayer. 
you're going to feel discomforted by your meeting with Allah. He goes, but when you hear the adhan and you feel a sense of relief and a sense of joy and a sense of you're looking forward to something, he said, then that's going to be your status on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, if you don't want to meet Allah now, you're not going to want to meet him then. If you want to meet him now, you're definitely going to want, you're going to, want to meet him then. There are some people in their graves right now that because they were good in this life, they're saying, oh, Allah, bring the day of judgment quickly. Hurry it up. I want to get there. I want to get to my paradise. I want to get to my mansion because they gave it all in this life. So this adhan is more than just like a function of calling people. It's actually a spiritual moment. It's like the first part of your prayer in a, in a way. When your phone tells you it's time for Isha, it's time for Fajr, and you look at it, how do you look at it? Do you look at it with excitement or disdain? Do you look at it with relief or with burden? That's why the Prophet used to say, biha. Give us some rest with it, Ya Bilal. Call the adhan so we can stop with all this dunya stuff. Take a break from our business and our this and our... Give us some rest. Now, many of us, honestly, we say, well, you know what? The prayer does kind of cause me some, some burden, some resentment. I feel rushed. I feel I don't have time to do it. It's an ongoing project. We have to work on it. And we're going to do some stuff that will help with that. But I want us to at least walk away with that alone, inshallah. The second thing that I'll end with is this. The Prophet picked two people to be the Mu'adhan. The first was Bilal. What's Bilal? He was a former slave. He was a former slave in a society that saw his blackness and his skin color, right, as being something that made him lesser than the Arabs or lesser than others. And the Prophet chose him to be what? The Mu'addin. You know who the Mu'addin is in ranking? You know who the Mu'addin is? The Mu'addin is the second person after the Imam. If the Imam is sick, who leads the prayer? The Mu'addin. Not only that, but the Mu'addin is like a position, a position. You know how here in America anyone can go call the Adhan? Right, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, in other in, in certain established countries where the masajid are run by endowments, it's not like that. If you go to Turkey, that dude, that's his job. Like he is chosen, right? That he has to go give the event. The Prophet ﷺ took Bilal and said, "You're that person." When there were people who were pure-blooded Arabs who could have, there were people who were closer to the Prophet ﷺ, his own family. He said, "No, Bilal is going to be that person." The next person is going to blow your mind. You ready for this? Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum. Very interesting story. We don't have a lot of time. Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum was blind. He was the man who couldn't see. And he's the person who came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Mecca. He was one of the early Muslims. And he was calling the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to ask him a question when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was in the middle of a conversation with somebody. And during that conversation, because he kept calling and calling, and the Prophet was in the conversation with very important leadership, Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he slightly kind of furrowed his brow a little bit out of feeling, uh, you know, conflicted at the situation. And he, he turned away from Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, right? As if to say, like, I'll come to you in a second. Just give me a minute, you know? I'll be with you in one second. Just give me one second. That moment alone that maybe took one second, that little furrowing of the brow, Allah Ta'ala introduced an entire chapter called Surah Abasa. Abasa wa tawalla an ja'ahu al-a'ma that he frowned and turned away when the blind man came to him. So whenever Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum walked in the room, the Prophet Sallallahu would say, greetings to the one who Allah spoke to me because of him. Like Allah basically taught me because of this guy, you know? And Abdullah bin Maktoum would smile and they would have a good relationship because of that. Now he's blind, okay? We, are, we, we, we established this. What do you need in order to call the adhan besides a voice? How do you know what time it is to pray? Everyone's like, your iPhone tells you? No. How do you know what time it is to pray, y'all? The sun. The position of the sun, okay? Some of y'all might have learned something tonight, okay? The position of the sun tells you. 
All right. So whether it's added zenith, whether it's causing a shadow to be equal to something or twice of something, it's the sunset, right? And then when the sun has completely left the horizon, and Fedger is obviously before the sunrise. So the sun, visually being able to see the sun with your eyes and your sight, are you guys following? Is an important skill to have. What is the one skill that Abdullah bin Umaktoum doesn't have? Sight. How was he able to do it? Some companions asked the Prophet he said, you're going to tell him where the sun is, he'll call it. Do you guys see the power that he's doing right there? You see what he's doing? He's flipping all the societal norms on their head. He's saying Bilal and Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, before Islam, you guys considered them not worth much. Bilal was a slave, Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum was blind. You didn't really look at twice at him. You didn't care. They were invisible. I'm going to make sure you never forget who they are. I'm going to make sure Bilal, people will name their children after him. I'm going to make sure Abdullah Maktoum, he can't see, but boy, can he say stuff. And just because he can't see doesn't mean he can't say it. You're going to tell him where the sun is. He took the societal norms and he flipped them on its head. He didn't let society tell him who was valuable and who wasn't. That wasn't the way the Prophet worked. He wanted everyone to know, in Just because a person is black and is a former slave, you're going to think really that you're better than them? Just because a person can't see, really you're going to think you're better than them? You're really that superficial and that ignorant. That you're a person that's that ignorant, that you think that that makes you better than that person? When Allah says that the way that Allah distinguishes is by taqwa, all right, you know what? You're not going to be able to come pray unless this person that you thought you were better than, he calls you to prayer. You're not going to be able to pray unless this person that you never saw because he was blind, he calls you to prayer. And in fact, your job is to tell him where the sun is. And when the Prophet left Medina, he said, Abdullah bin Umaktoum, you're the governor. You're in charge. Anyone has questions, they come to you. And this wasn't like a cute little PR stunt. He meant it. He was trying to reshape the way people saw people. He was trying to rebuild the hearts of these people so that they didn't fall into the same traps that are still there with us today. Do not see people for what society tells you they are. See people for the capacity that Allah Ta'ala has built us with. Just because somebody doesn't have the outer manifestations of what you think, what you think or what society thinks is valuable, does not mean that they're not valuable to Allah. Does not mean that. A person might be so precious to Allah and, and we think that they're not because of something when they are so valuable to Allah, if they whisper one dua in the middle of the night, Allah accepts it. Meanwhile, we think people are important and they beg Allah for months and months and Allah doesn't accept it because of something. So what's the safe approach? Value everybody as if they're close to Allah. Look around you and consider everybody in this room a close friend of Allah. And then the way that you see them, the way that you treat with them, that'll be how you build this Medina community. We ask Allah Ta'ala to grant us tawfiq. We ask Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala to make us people who really have this sense of love and value of each other that doesn't just go skin deep and we're able to deconstruct all these unfortunate realities that are around us and we see people for the faith that they have. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us people who value one another. We ask Allah ta'ala to make us people who don't see our tribe or our lineage or our skin color or the way that we were brought up or the way that we were as something that's going to make us better than somebody, but that we trust the judgment of who is better than who to Allah and that we ask Allah to grant us 
husn of dhan, that we have good benefit of the doubt for everybody, that everybody is beautiful internally, everyone has a close relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that we hope to seek from whatever blessing and benefit people have, regardless of whatever our nafs might tell them might tell ourselves about them. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive our sins. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if anybody in here has anything that is that is concerning to them, whether it be their job with the economy being suffering, or whether it's their health, or whether it's their family situation, or whether it's their spiritual situation, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to resolve and untangle our issues for us and to give us strength to endure and handle these situations as they unfold. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring us close to Him and never let us stray far. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. Barakallah feekum everybody. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.